0: Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. welcome to the babylon project our last best hope for trash this is a rewatch podcast for babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie i am your newbie host justin and here to help me along are my co hosts jude and anna jude anna we are at the fall of night uh dang what are we doing here (laughs) who are we and what do we want yeah, um well we we've answered one of those questions last episode. Um Did and we, we've no? answered one of those other questions before. But yeah, we're here at season two. How are we feeling? End of season two. Uh
1: enthusiastic about season three? Cool.
2: Yeah. I'm there's a lot of stuff in season three I'm
0: really enthusiastic to be talking about. Season three fucks. Uh yeah. it's got a lot going for it. Yeah, tonight we're only talking about one episode, that's Season 2, Episode 22, The Fall of Night, written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Janet Greek. It is season finale time! Everything is pain! <laughs> this show does not skimp on its season finales. No. <laughs> no. Well, we, we start off with some Star Furies doing dogfighting pro- practice, including Sheridan sharing knowledge that Centauri pilots would put their fighters on autopilot- uh, to keep flying them even if they black out from the G-forces. That seems like more metal than a thing that Centauri should be able to do. Sheridan gets an urgent communique from CNC and heads back to the barn. Sheridan meets with Ivanova, and they go through the results of the exercise. Ivanova jokes that if the pilots do not improve, she will start issuing live ammunition for inspiration. It's a very Ivanova comment. Veer and Lanier, ruminate on the misery of being ambassadorial age, which is apparently a daily occurrence for the both of them, I stand. The Drazi and Pakmara are in Sheridan's office, and they say that the Centauri have taken territory for them. They believe this is the prelude to a bigger offensive. Londo, when called in by Sheridan, dismisses it as the Centauri creating a buffer zone, um, wrong. <laughs> and that this will lead to peace. Londo refuses to listen, and dismisses Sheridan's concerns. Garibaldi remarks later in Sheridan's office that Lando has changed and that he's become unreasonable. Garibaldi thinks that he's afraid and that he's clinging to this Imperial course just to try and control it. Sheridan has sent a report to Earthdome and he thinks now that races other than the Narn are involved, Earth might step in. Indeed, a ship from Earth arrives. It has Frederick or Lance uh, from the Ministry of Peace arriving along with uh, Mr. Wells, uh, who is in charge of the Night Watch. Back in the pilot's locker room, Keffer and another pilot discuss a sensor ghost in hyperspace which sounds like the Shadow Ship. Sheridan meets with Lance at Customs and he looks like he's on the case. He wants an office to meet with the Centauri and the League of Non Worlds about the problem. Keffer meets with a pilot from another wing and talks about the ghost in hyperspace and Commander Goutless' disappearance. Keffer desperately wants to continue his search to know what's out there. Ivanova talks with Lance in private, and Lance talks about the need for the Ministry of Peace, that there's been enough death with the recent earth bari War, and they must strive to make something better. Back in CNC, a ship is jumping in, a Narn cruiser. War leader in the call speaks with Sheridan, explaining they were on deep patrol when the Centauri struck. Their ship is in need of repairs, and the war leader asks Sheridan for sanctuary. Lance's assistant, Wells, meets with Ivanova and asks if she's happy here. He asks her where she wants to go next, and she admits the command is appealing to her. Wells tempts her with a promise of a cushy command for her support with the Night Watch and to spy on people. Ivanova mentions that she knows about the Night Watch and that she sees her worries about them were justified, and she's not going to sell out her colleagues. Ivanova sees him out. Sheridan speaks with Jakar and explains they have hidden the Narn vessel on the other side of the planet while they effect repairs. They're also giving equipment to help them with repairs. Jakar is also informed about Lance, and thinking that he is there to help stop the Centauri, eagerly goes to visit him. Wells holds an informal meeting of the Night Watch, where he remarks that he hasn't seen any reports of suspicious activity from Mr. Zach Allen. Allen remarks that he hasn't seen anything, but Wells reports several incidents of sedition. He explains the Watch is there to protect people from harmful ideas, and gets the rather affable alan to corroborate some stories meanwhile Keffer broods in the pilot's locker room and he gets a data crystal from that other pilot harvey who has recordings of neutrino emissions from that ghost ship harvey warns him that this is way too dangerous and leaves jakar approaches minister lance and ivanova in the hallway and lance refuses to speak with him not a great sign Sheridan and Nicole speak again, and Nicole informs him that they are running too low on power. Sheridan has them take the cruisers' jump engines offline so they can effect better repairs, promising to protect them in the case of an emergency. Lance then waltzes into CNC, demanding to know why Sheridan has been drilling the squadrons and combating Centauri combat techniques. Lance says this jeopardizes their entire mission, to negotiate a non-aggression treaty with the Centauri. Sheridan fumes in his office with Ivanova and expresses that he's been disillusioned with Earth Alliance recently. Ivanova, in an attempt to cheer him up, presents Sheridan with a Christmas, or Hanukkah or whatever, quote her, gift. It's a piece of shrapnel from the Black Star, with Ivanova saying it's there to give him a reminder that the impossible is worth doing and can be possible. Londo then contacts Sheridan and demands that they hand over the Narn. Wells has tipped off Londo about the cruiser. Snitch. Sheridan rushes to CNC and contacts Nicole. They are running repairs still, but a Centauri warship jumps in. Sheridan launches fighters, and Lance rushes in, saying that Sheridan is endangering everything he's working towards. Sheridan has Lance escorted from CNC. Sheridan speaks with Malari and informs him that he's given the Narn free passage. They are protected as long as they are in Babylon 5 space, and if the cruiser attacks, he will respond with deadly force. The Narn Cruiser starts to depart, and Zeta Wing escorts them through. However, the Centauri opened fire on both Babylon 5 and the Cruiser. A battle ensues, but the Narn Cruiser is able to pull through and escape. The Centauri warship is damaged, however, and explodes before a rescue can occur. When Sheridan speaks with Lance, he says that they had no choice but to fire back, and that offering the Narn ship sanctuary was him following regulations. He says it may not have been politically convenient, but it was the morally and legally correct thing to do. Wells says that while this is correct, Sheridan is being ordered by the President and the Joint Chiefs to apologize to the Centauri in the Gardens in an hour. Meanwhile, in hyperspace, Keffer breaks from the escort of the Narn Cruiser to follow his modified sensors tracking of that sensor ghost. He is able to see the shadow ship in hyperspace and follows it, recording it with his gun cam. The shadow ship detects him and he ejects his recorder with a homing beacon before he's destroyed. Back on the station, Sheridan is in his quarters, practicing his apology and being sparmy about it. The Centauri and other ambassadors have gathered in the garden, waiting for Sheridan. As Sheridan moves through the Zocalo, a pair of Centauri follow him. Sheridan takes the mag train, and the Centauri follow him aboard. At the next to last stop, the Centauri leave a package on board. It's a bomb! Sheridan jumps from the the train just before it explodes. As Sheridan is racing towards the ground, Deled pleads with Kosh to save Sheridan. Kosh's encounter suit opens, and a being of light emerges, catching Sheridan. Every person in residence sees a holy figure, a being of light, as Kosh rises and guides Sheridan to the ground. Later, Anarn and Drazi speak at the bar, debating over the religious significance of the being of light. They agree that this is a good sign. When the Drazi asks Londo what he saw. He says he saw nothing. Afterwards, Deled meets with Sheridan. Everyone saw something different yet the same. Sheridan remarks that this is what Kosh meant when he said everyone would recognize him if he left as his suit. The Vorolads have visited many races, but now that Kosh has revealed himself, the Shadows will move into action. However, if the Shadows are not sure that other races are aware of them, they might not move into... Uh, who are we kidding? Ivanova cobs in with Zeta Squadron returning sans Keffer Rip, buddy, we hardly cared about you. <laughs> <laughs> Ivanova narrates the end of the season with the Centauri expanding their war to other nations and with the Nightwatch slowly expanding their hold without forcefully closing a store on the Zoglo. As Ivanova lights a menorah, she says that Babylon 5's mission to peace has failed, but in doing so, it became something greater. As the war expands, it became their last best hope for victory because sometimes peace is another word for surrender. Our last shot is an ISN broadcast of Zephyr's flight recorder. Showed the shadow ship.
2: Bum, bum, bum. And
0: that is season two, The Coming of Shadows.
2: Shit. That's, that's sure a season.
0: This episode is weird. There's a lot going on here, and it's like in... We have the culmination of a completely useless character who was forced upon by the networks, and JMS is just like, raring at the bit to kill him, but he couldn't do it till the finale. Yeah. Um,
1: (laughs) This episode is hilarious to me because it's like, this completely I mean, it's not a useless plot. Like, JMS with all the subtlety of a hippo (laughs) spread eagle on the hood of a Chevy dump truck s- speeding towards you at about ninety <laughs> miles an hour with the horn blaring. Uh, oh, Susanna, <laughs> broadcasting a uh, a Chamberlain analog, fucking around with this this peace process, um, and then right at you get to the end, it's like, uh, oh, more lawn shit, and all of a sudden that whole thing doesn't matter. You just don't give a shit. And like, what do people talk about for this episode? The Vorlon shit. Does anybody remember yeah. Lance or give a shit about Lance? No.
0: Which is a shame. Roy Dut- Dutras should never be ignored.
1: Yeah, I know he's great in this episode because you really like him at first. And yeah. then he reveals what a just cowardly douche he is. And you're like, oh no, this guy sucks. And it's entirely down to like subtleties in the performance and the writing that that heel turn is accomplished. It's really nicely done. I like it. But uh, it's all about the Vorlons, man. It's all about the Vorlons in this episode.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: We talked last episode about our suspicion that Londo has a keeper already. And uh, I had a moment of of like, oh, is that why he can't see the Vorlon? But uh, I looked it up and I won't say anything more except to say that no, he does not have one. But yes, the cough is significant.
2: Interesting. Okay. Do we need a headphones moment about this for you and I to talk about this? If you want to. Sure. Cool. You, we haven't had one in a while. Yeah. We, we went a whole recording session last time. Uh... Activate gold channel one.
1: Uh, he gets the keeper after right when he becomes emperor after uh, Centauri is conquered by the Drok.
2: Okay. Yeah. He
1: that makes is, sense. He's made to accept one, and uh,
2: he, but then what's the cough?
1: JMS is not is not specific about what it is, but it's some kind of like indication that he has become corrupted by the shadows by accepting the the Narn War con- the consequences of the Narn War. But it's like a uh, he he doesn't say whether it's a an acting choice or whether it's a like something's physically going on but i
2: love that idea that he had just like the seed of a keeper in him at that yeah point though that's that's a great fan theory
1: yeah no i prefer it because it makes a lot of sense but yeah apparently uh he doesn't he doesn't get the keeper until the until after he becomes emperor for the first time
2: so i'm not sure that we needed i'm not sure that justin needed to have their headphones off for this because justin knows that Londa becomes emperor.
1: Yeah, well, but it's it's an it's a season five episode. It happens in a season five episode. So
0: okay. long one.
1: Uh all right. So uh yeah, Warlons. Woo! I really like that all the races saw something different and Londo's like, I don't know, give me a drink.
0: Yeah. He's just yeah. sitting
1: there like a sad f- fucking fancy haired panda drinking his drink. I saw nothing.
2: And and it's kind of up to the viewer as to what exactly that means. I don't think it's ever spelled out.
0: Yeah. Could be that he's lying, could be that he didn't see anything, or... Yeah. We have,
1: yeah. as we, I think we discussed this last episode as well, we have reason, it, it it's reasonable to assume that Centauri, as a species, as a race, can see Vorlons. Because they have
2: telepaths.
1: Yeah. But Londo... Londo's answer is dubious enough that it's not clear whether it's he can't see them or whether he can and he's being dumb. So
2: Yeah. Uh, and it's it's a good question because it could be it could be that Lando is so tainted himself from his dealings with Morden yeah. that or something. Or maybe it's a maybe it's a protective thing protective camouflage on the part of the Vorlons so they can't be mm-hmm. seen by people who've been tainted by the shadows. Yeah. Who knows? It's a good question.
0: Yep. Uh, you want to talk about candles? Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. the So, in Long Twilight Struggle, we see Jakar snuffing out a candle, but um, as Ivanova here is lighting a menorah, uh, she is talking about, you know, hope and victory. a nice little callback between those two episodes. Confirmed by
1: JMS in Lurker's Guide that this is an intentional callback. Um, Apparently, I think he said something to the effect of if you count the number of candles on Jakar's table in that scene, it's the same number of candles in... So it's a deliberate Mm. connection between those two scenes. Interesting. So that it it connects those two scenes together um, because Hope is going out in the first one and then coming back a little bit in the, in the second which is nice I like that
2: yeah yeah it's a nice piece of mirroring yeah I mean on a different note I'm always shocked that there are open flames on right? this space station
0: yeah uh, I know it's just one of those things that it's just like I'm gonna just like shrug because whatever yeah. It's, yeah. it's nice for the story I don't care about the science. Yeah, but I do. That's just one of those things of like. Yeah.
2: It's, it's more, it's it's not even a science thing. Like B5 is a big enough environment that they shouldn't have to worry about like the candles consuming oxygen, et cetera. However, like fire bad. Yeah. In an enclosed situation like yeah. B5, fire bad.
1: I agree with you. Uh, it's one of those, uh, with both of you. It's one of those things that's like, it's a detail I don't care about. But it's also a detail that when I think about it, I think like, Jesus, like, no.
2: <laughs> it's, it's always in the back of my mind. Like, while I'm watching the episode, it never bothers me. But then I'm like, wow, they really shouldn't have candles there. In the part of my mind, that's a buzzkill.
1: If you ever read the Luna books, like, I keep telling you to read them, Justin. There's a throwaway detail in one of them where one of the characters, like, sees a flame and is like, horrified by it because he's lived his entire life in sealed environments on the moon and he's literally never seen a flame before in his entire life and except in like cartoons in like about warning like what happens when you when a fire breaks out and you have to evacuate your the, the you know the habitat you're in and uh it's real it's real good
2: it's one of those things where like B five is in this weird zone of where it's it's far ish future. It's like mid future sci fi, but it's not as far as some other stuff, and it's not as near as some other stuff. Like there are certainly things where sci fi things where it's a closed environment, and if they were to show a candle flame, I would be completely shocked. Mm -hmm. And then there's other stuff where it's completely reasonable that, like, the situation, they have sufficient technology. But B5 is in this weird gray zone where it's not clear to me that they have the, that they have, like, super advanced, like, fire suppression technology.
1: This is all a segue so that Anna can dunk on the gravity in in, 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 in the explosion scene. Anna doesn't care about the candles. This is all just a segue to get to the gravity. Okay, so the funny thing is... science levels. It's all all a long round about gravity.
2: The funny thing is, I'm not going to dunk on the gravity, Jude. I'm not going to dunk about the gravity. Specifically, in the outline, I say, Anna screams about gravity. Does it say, Anna dunks on gravity? No, it does not. Because... This is actually one of the points where B5 plays with gravity and it makes me really happy. Oh, because, look at that. Okay, so in the scene, it takes Sheridan an awfully long time to travel through like, you know, what's a fairly long distance, but it's not like, you know, if you're moving at terminal velocity, he would've been pancaked a long time ago, right? Mm-hmm. However, and this is actually called out by Ivanova. Ivanova says he's functionally weightless, but the station is moving at 60 miles an hour because the, he is in the middle of an O'Neill cylinder. The only force that is carrying him or momentum is the momentum from him jumping out of that car and the, and the force of the explosion. There is no gravity pulling him toward the cylinder.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: He's moving toward it at essentially a constant speed. He's not accelerating. However, if you move at constant speed towards something that's rotating at 60 miles an hour,
1: you're going to toast. Yeah, you're going to get a real bad case of uh,
2: road, rash. road rash. Yeah. Like it's not that he's going to be pancaked the way that he would if he were falling a similar distance out of the sky. On a planet,
1: It's gonna get smeared.
2: Right across like going to three be just miles, blastered. B five across, th- yeah. <laughs> um, and it's it's a really nice little call out because it's something where you know and I've said this before, and I will I'm sure I will say it again. Um, B five is something where if it were made now, I'm sure they would play with gravity and um, space stuff a lot more. Yeah. Um, but they don't because of limitations of practical and computer-generated effects at the time. Yep. Mm-hmm. I say as I'm wearing my Expanse Pure and Clean shirt.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: The two shows are in an interestingly similar zone of technology. If B5 were made now, it would be really interesting to see them incorporate a lot of the space stuff that the Expanse incorporates. But it totally makes sense that they don't. As yeah. well, yep.
1: Um,
2: but it was. But I wanted to call out the that this is this is honest screaming about gravity because it's they did a good job. Nice. Also, this is the this is also the scene that alongside the dimensions of B five allows you to calculate that B five has about zero uh, point six G, if I remember correctly.
1: Oh yeah, dimensions plus spin equals
0: G.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, so it's about equivalent to Mars interesting the more you know
0: so um speaking of the vorlon scene i i want to talk <laughs> about i want to talk about a funny just correlation i have because whether this is on some level telepathic genetic memory what have you you know each species perceives sheridan sees an angel um the narncy and see jalan i believe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it reminded me of something from the mass effect series it's a specific scene from I think Mass Effect Two, which it, which comes like twelve or thirteen years later. But um, so for for those who don't know, there is a species in Mass Effect called the Asari, who are basically filling the trope of technicolor hot lady. They're a mono-sexed species who are basically hot ladies who are blue or green. However, um, and, and they can and they can procreate with any alien species the the thing that like there there is a background conversation that happens in one of the games at a bachelor party about what each of what uh, it's a human a turian and a salarian so a human and two alien races talking about what they find attractive in an asari and they all mention different parts of her. And somebody suggests that there is a that Asari have pheromones that manipulate people so that they will perceive what is most attractive to their species. Hmm. Which is honestly just like, it was something that just connected me. And it was like.
1: What do we got here? What do we got at the end here?
0: So um, I do want to, like, before we move on to just like our season interview, we have a triple shot of, hey, I know that face. Okay. So Roy Dotrice, who plays Lance, is 55 um, plus year veteran of Hollywood. Um, he was Mozart in Amadeus. Um, like he's just done a bunch of stuff. Nerds in general will probably know him best as the narrator for the A Song of Ice and Fire audiobooks. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, which I think he owns the record for like most characters voiced in a series.
1: <laughs> <That's>, that tracks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah which, which uh, pretty great um Robin Sachs who plays war leader Nicole will end up I think this is his first character but he will end up playing four different characters across B5 <laughs> wow
2: this must be one of those people who's real good in prosthetics
0: yeah he also plays uh Ethan Rain who is oh, Giles is like who's who Giles like wizard friend from when he was River his, his oh, wizard friend X and then, lastly, uh, John Vickery, who plays Mr. Wells, also plays Elite Naroon. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: That and that also that also tracks. They're not dissimilar characters. <laughs> yeah, just some
0: <laughs> fun funny. double casting here.
1: So you're saying that Giles would fuck him in Bari?
0: <laughs> Putting that on Twitter. We are. We're now. We're we're done with season two. We have. Uh, gotten through this i think like season two is definitely an upgrade from season one like just looking back on it there's less episodes where you're just asking why the fuck is this here and it's not even that like there's like less episodes that are just like this is going to set up something that's going to pay off three seasons from now supposedly it's just like i think it's the show is better formed at this point yeah, yeah. Like, that's just a natural progression of a writer's room and a cast mm-hmm.
2: everybody's got a better hold on the characters yeah yeah. And and the stuff that's being set up also is starting to pay off. Yeah. Importantly. Yeah.
1: yeah, we're starting to see stuff like in rather than stuff being set up, you're seeing stuff in motion and stuff coming together and starting to see the first things start to not resolve but start to like you're starting to see the first hints of what they're getting at and it feels really like dynamic.
0: Part of this is also I think that like there is a definite change in tone as you know the show swaps leads and i think we'll talk about this later when o'hare returns as well uh for like the the war without him and stuff but i think it's just like the the transition to sheridan sort of just like by plucking out that mystery element of like the hole in sinclair's mind like and replacing it with sheridan who is the most earnest dude even if he's I'm trying to think of the best way to put this.
1: Sheridan is Dweeb Warrior Dad. Yeah, he <laughs> is.
0: And I think that's like I think it's a I think it's a change that lets everything else in Babylon 5 coalesce around him.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And this is this is one of those things that you know has led to me always like being shocked that there wasn't the plan for o'hare to leave after the first season and then come back because it i i love sinclair and his send-off in season three is so good yeah um that meshes it just ties into everything so perfectly that it's a shock that that was not planned from the beginning
1: the original conception was that he was this chosen one and that the whole arc was around him being the chosen one that would, like, re-link the Minbari and the... Well, they're... I wonder if this is spoilers. Not really. So in the original plan, Sinclair and Delenn have a son who is the bridge back from the Minbari to the... uh for, From the humans to the Minbari.
2: So the souls balance again.
1: So the souls are balanced. So it makes sense that, like, he's a mystery and, like... He retains that mysterious thing. So when he left and they brought it back in, they just sort of like rehooked some of those mystery threads
2: back in. And just sort of re- rewove them.
1: Yeah. But all the leadership yeah. stuff stayed with Sheridan. So as a result, all of that like momentum and like war stories, like war momentum stays with the show. And all of the weird religious. Mystery stuff kind of pops back up for a second, and you're like, "Oh, that's cool," and then it's resolved right there. Whoop, bow. Whereas instead of being like the plot of the show across ten fucking seasons,
2: yeah, yeah,
1: which is bizarre how one actor leaving completely like changed the course of the show.
2: Yeah, and and I really I really like Sheridan a lot he He has such a great energy in season two mm. I mean, I love him in the other seasons too, but but he has he's a little bit as as the war progresses and things get darker he has to take on a different role.
1: he's much more warrior Sheridan than dweeb warrior dweeb warrior dad sheridan mm-hmm.
2: yeah, like I love the the earnestness and that he he makes kind of a decent audience surrogate for a lot of the like weird Mimbari shit, yeah. too.
1: Yeah. Falling asleep at the table during, like, course number 47.
2: And just being like, oh, wow, that's that's really cool. Yeah. When he learns about stuff. Yeah. As the audience is like, oh, wow, that's really cool.
1: Yeah. It turns out I also collect mysteries. And you're like, of course you do, you big fucking cans. nerd. That's scans. <laughs> as far as season two goes, I think the thing that I, I mean... Look, it's not going to surprise anybody for me to say that I think the winner in season two is Jakar.
0: I mean, his plotline, sure. Or, 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 I mean, like as as like a character, or guest, For him, I don't think he's winning anything this season. <laughs> no, but everybody that everybody on the show got to do some good stuff.
1: Ivanova got to do a sex dance. Uh, Sheridan and Delenn get to flirt. Delenn doesn't have to wear face makeup every day. Londo gets to commit war crimes, but Jakar gets to have (laughs) the most potent emotional arc on the show, like all the time, consistently. Mm -hmm. Um, And he just slams it out of the park every single time he's on screen. Watching the show critically has been a joy to me because I don't think I appreciated how good Andres Katsulas was until we started watching it for the show. And you, when you watch him, rather than just watching the show, when you watch him and you see how how good he is in the scenes and how the way that everybody else tries to step up to his level in the scenes they're in with him, you realize how lucky the show was to to to, to land him. Everybody that yeah. all of the main characters on the cast are are good and really bring something special to the show, but I don't think any of them would argue that he was. He was something special in that cast.
2: All three of the primary ambassadors are in in a tier. I mean, everybody is good with the exception of like Jerry Doyle. Yeah. The three ambassadors, I think all three of them, because I mean you're you're highlighting Jakar, and I'm not gonna argue that Jakar and Casalis are astounding, but
1: Mira Furlan. You know, Mira
2: Furlan as Delenn Certainly. is incredible. Yeah. And Peter Jurassic as Lando. Like, you know, it's yeah. to to have the breadth of audience responses to his character that, you know, he can he can go from being, you know, the family member who is kind of racist, but you have but it tells some funny jokes and you have fond memories of them, to just like the visceral hatred that you have for him at the end of the Narn war in the council scene.
1: yeah no he he's yeah all the ambassadors you're right. all the ambassadors do tremendous work in this show, especially like seasons two and three I think in particular you see some fr- from the three of them you see really tremendous work
2: A lot of Mira Ferlin's best work is yet to come
1: uh-huh. that she had a
2: really strong back half of this season.
1: yeah. Dylan
2: had a lot of good airtime. Um the one the one character who I think always deserves more airtime is Ivanova.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree like I, I there's a couple of Ivanova centric episodes but I, I don't think there's like really any I'm mean, beyond divided loyalties which we you know we have a whole episode about. I, I don't think there's quite another good Ivanova centric episode here. But like, yeah. There's good bits, and I think like she's she's like some consistently the character who like will be the most of that character in any scene they're in. <laughs>
1: yeah. No, she's fantastic every time she shows up, but she for sure doesn't. As a as a consequence of her role, it's yeah. harder for it's harder to find places for her to shine the way that the ambassadors get. Mm-hmm. She doesn't drive the plot as often as she does support the plot.
2: I just wish that they could take all of the airtime devoted to Garibaldi and just give it to Ivanova. And just have, like, a cardboard cutout. Yeah. Sand in for Garibaldi. And just be like, yes, the the security chief who exists but we never see on screen.
0: Yep. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we're, let's, you know, housekeeping for where our current plot lines are. Centauri on the warpath. They are gobbling up small nations Uh now narn i think i predicted like a revenge thing for them and that didn't go great earth sending into a Uh shithole. yep shadows creeping Uh morden punchable mimbari
2: uh devolving into some real bad political shit yeah like that they're becoming more isolationist and the warrior cast are taking
0: control yep so that's real promising Xenophobic uh, warrior cast. That doesn't that that sounds like that might be going somewhere. So let's see. I mean, I'm ready. I'm ready to talk about my son, uh, <laughs> but we're gonna have to do that next time. Yeah, when we get to season three. But I'm ready to talk about that boy. <laughs>
2: the 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 our best himbo.
0: Yeah. And gosh. Um, yeah. Like season three. Like like if you're keeping pace with the show, I'm not gonna go too far into it, but. Season three is finally where we see shit start to pay off. So I'm very happy that we are moving forward. And um, hey, this has been... We've got two seasons in the can, y'all. We're we're doing great at this.
2: I wanted to mention a couple of things that I forgot to mention as we were talking about the relevant actual episodes. So I wanted to shove them in here because there's no place better for them to go. Um, First thing Mm. is that I've always felt like the... The kind of soldier of darkness creature in Long Dark is, looks a hell of a lot like a Balrog. And I don't think that that's a coincidence, especially in an episode named The Long Dark.
1: JMS doesn't do things based on the Lord of the Rings, don't you know? Kaza is not intended <laughs> to be a reference point for Zaha Doom, obviously. And the Rangers, Clearly. it's just, they're just Rangers. It's not at all a reference to Lord of the Rings. Come on.
0: Okay, I want to talk about a bugbear I have with the Rangers.
1: Fucking jam! Oh. Is they
0: get introduced. In, they get introduced in episode nine, so they're they're around for you know like fourteen episodes. Mm-hmm. They do one thing this entire season.
2: Ah, okay. So I will challenge you to rewatch this and look for the and look for the pin.
0: I know that they're in the backgrounds and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I know I like I know that. Yeah. but I'm saying in the context of the story they're a <laughs> plot thread that gets referenced like three times mostly in the back end of the season and they do what on screen they they do one thing off screen I actually like yeah. that
1: though I like that they you, they you they set them up as this like thing that's been going on in the background and you kind of get used to them being there and then they become more as the show goes on but I like that they don't introduce this like super army out of nowhere, like they're yeah, a thing they're still that in grows. Training. They're a thing that 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 is getting bigger and more useful and grows as the show goes on. But I grant you that it's not very well done.
2: I would also encourage you to watch very carefully and look for the ranger pin, because for instance, uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention in divided loyalties, uh, the opener for the the opener for the episode has a couple of folks on Mars wh- who one person is like dying for a piece of information that they got, which is the the thing with
0: control. Um, those are Rangers. But the context of the episode, like, like, okay, I think it's, uh, the, there's the whole thing of like, if you have to squint to see it. Yeah. Uh, I like in the context of the episode, it makes you think that like you're given to believe those are just members of the Mars resistance. Yeah. Like that—that that is what you take away from how that is related in the narrative.
2: Yeah, that there could be more done with the the Rangers, like and their training, et cetera,
0: textually. But yeah. like, I get that they're in the background. Like, I like you can spot like when they are, and there's even like scenes where Garibaldi, before he's clued in anybody else, will react to them.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's they're peppered throughout all of season two. And it's interesting that there, like that, there are rangers involved with the resistance on Mars. Like, who would have thunk that? I mean, it makes sense because Sinclair is a Martian. It's an interesting thing. This I think was probably difficult to balance.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's just it's one of those things that it's like I think they got like twenty percent too cute with that. Yeah, that's fair. But that's just that's, that that is my opinion especially right
2: since they only draw attention to the pin in what the back half of season three, right? Like the pin is only explained. Yeah. Then. Yep. Without like it's it's a rewatch Easter egg, not a like look. There's people in their Rangers doing stuff on Mars. It, it's just a fun thing to pick up on when you're rewatching. Mm-hmm. For the millionth time.
0: Yep. I agree. So you had some funny questions, Justin? Yeah, these are two that I just couldn't find. I couldn't fit into an episode. Um, Jude, Anna, how do you prefer your spoo prepared? Spoo or flarn? Spoo. I mean, if you want want flarn, sure. I I prefer my Are menbari vegetarians? Probably.
1: Um, I prefer my spoo formed into the shape of a giant fish head, then stewed in a pot, while serenaded by Jakar. <laughs>
2: cool. Spoo. It always, always feels like tofu or something in my brain.
1: Even though it's supposed so to taste maybe... like Swedish meatballs?
2: <laughs> I, I'm feeling like surfry, Fry, maybe.
1: See, uh, my second answer would have been uh, from an Ikea.
2: <laughs> well, then, then we're gonna have to talk about IKEA food again.
1: No, let's let's not. And I'm pretty run. sure
0: that uh-uh. Zathros would kill us. Uh,
1: yeah, I'm tired. I'm ready to not talk about IKEA.
0: <laughs> um, last one here is: which Babylon Five resident would make the best blind date? That's a that's a trick question,
1: because the answer is Jakar <laughs> because he would make the best any kind of date, whether it's a blind date or a fix up. Or, I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of date it is. The answer is always,
2: obviously, Jakar. I think I might go with Veer on this one.
0: <laughs> okay. Veer would be, like, very earnest.
2: Irks- that would be so fun. Because, like, Can you imagine? it'd be, be, it'd be kind mess. of like, it'd be such a hot mess. But I think that, like, if you could get him to relax, I feel like he would be pretty fun on a date.
1: Oh, man. Did I? But... Did I tell you? I think I told you guys in the chat the thing that was planned. One of the original plot lines for season two that was scrapped. Thank God. <laughs> what was it? Which one was that? Uh, that they were going to have some. Someone was going to uh, uh, put a virtual sex club on the station, and the hottest oh, selling no. uh, the hottest selling VR model was was going to be Ivanova.
0: <sighs> Gross gross yeah, mm-hmm. that that's bad
1: yeah i'm real glad that 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 one didn't pass muster
0: that would have been like if if that in the parallel reality where that is a thing justin has quit the podcast
2: <laughs> luckily luckily the worst we delved into
0: was the retail subplot did we get a bad x plot line this season i feel like we did we did yeah. we did it was a tall one okay yeah
2: yeah most of the bad X plot lines are just Talia.
0: Unfortunately. So, y'all, we are done with season two. We are going to be moving on to the ominously named Point of No Return. So, join us next time for episodes one and two of season three Matters of Honor and Convictions. Until next time, be seeing you.